TED Audio Collective. Hey there, are you looking for something to inspire you this summer? Check out TED Talks Daily, the podcast that brings you fresh TED Talks every weekday. From TikTok CEO Sho Chu to actress Golshifta Farhani, you will hear firsthand from people whose ideas are changing the way we live. These talks will challenge you, spark your curiosity, and maybe even change the way you see the world. Don't miss out on the inspiration, knowledge, and new perspectives. Tune in to TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. This archival episode of Design Matters originally dropped in June of 2022. I knew my father loved me. He made that very clear. I think what happens is we throw around this weird language like broken home, right? We say, like, oh, you come from a broken home. And I, I don't like that I, I, because a broken home connotes that, a bro- that, that, that it makes broken people. I'm not a broken person, nor were my parents. From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 18 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Jason Reynolds talks about his life as a writer of books for and about young people. All I ever want to do in my books is just show, for me, specifically black children, as human beings. JasonWritesBooks.com. That's the URL of Jason Reynolds' website, and man, he's not kidding. Jason writes a lot of books. He's not yet 40, and his first novel wasn't published until 2014, but he has been writing books like there's no tomorrow. He's the author of some of the most celebrated YA fiction of our time, including All American Boys and the best-selling track series. He also writes comic books and books of poetry and has collaborated with Ibram X. Kendi on a young person's book about racism and anti-racism called Stamped. He joins me to talk about his career and a few of his latest books. Jason Reynolds, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you so much for having me. I feel like I've made it now. This is it. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Jason, I understand that you used to unwind by crocheting. <laughs> that's true. That's that's true. It's, it's funny. Nobody ever brings that up. I, um, gosh. Yeah, I used to. I learned to crochet when I was young, when I was, oh, I don't know, preteen, that, around that time, and uh, by one of my mother's friends. And, and it really had started as a way to make hats for myself that I couldn't find in the store and to have a little more control over my fashion sense. That, that's really what was happening. I, I was a young, sort of eclectic child who uh, <laughs> was always trying to figure out his personal style. And this was sort of a leg up. I felt like I had an upper hand. And so I learned to crochet. And what it ended up being was a tuning fork. What it ended up being was a grounding mechanism and teaching me things that nothing has taught me except for writing, right? So like to, to crochet, you have to be patient and you have to be detail oriented. You have to be willing to take it all apart if you make any mistakes, right? If I make a mistake, you got to, the whole thing is going to be off off track, right? It's going to be lopsided. Yeah. Can't miss a loop. Yeah, you can't. You can't drop a loop, right? You can't drop a stitch. And I learned that uh, young, and and I think it helped me along my process um, as I as I got a little older. So shout out to Miss Barbara who taught me how to crochet. 
You are the only born son of Isabel and Alan Reynolds, and you were raised in Oxon Hill right outside Washington, D.C. And I understand before you were born, your mom had a reading with some psychics who Mm. told her she needed to guard you because you were going to do special things. And you've said that this keeps you hopeful when you feel like you're not doing some special things. Did, Did that happen a lot when you were growing up? You know, it's it's funny, that reading has been the thing that has been a propellant for me, but it's also been, as I'm talking to my therapist more and more these days about that reading, it's also been a point of pressure, right? Because it's one of these things that like, my mom got that reading when I was still in utero, and there was a lot to that reading. It was also about sort of how me and this person, me and my mother had lived all these lifetimes together and and how this would be the final lifetime and that we would have a, a connection that would feel special in a different way, all of which is true, but also that she had to guard me and, and, and make sure that she did the job because I was supposed to do all these great things. All of this is great, except when you're told that when you're seven, uh, you know, it can sort of put an extra weight on you because you now realize, oh no, I have to change the world in some kind of way because it's been preordained, right? On the flip side though, it makes you kind of puff your chest out a bit because it's like, well, All I have to do is stay focused and we'll see what comes. We'll see if this thing is real. And my mom was also good about like, look, this isn't a pure science, right? This is something that my mother believes in, but she's no fool. She understands that life is life and real things are real things. And that whatever is happening in the cosmos or in the universe is its own sort of thing. And it's all of it is shifting. And you know what I mean? Like none of it is concrete. And so she did say this to me and did explain these things to me, but also was good about being like, yeah, you know, whatever it is that you do will be the thing that is that is fruitful for the world regardless. Um, you don't have to sort of be Martin Luther King, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, so... You've said you were raised in a household of really strong women who did not suffer fools and who believed in hard work and persistence. And from the time I think you were two years old, your bedroom routine included the affirmation, I can do anything, as if it was a bit of a mantra. And you've said that she did this to make sure you understood that the world was yours and that you could eat the world If you wanted to. Absolutely. Did you believe her? I, I didn't have a choice. I think that when you're that young and you start, you know, this, this is the beauty of language, right? That if you repeat that over and over again, language has a way of living in the body. It has a way of sort of fossilizing and attaching itself to the identity, mm-hmm. right? This is why we have to be careful with language. We have to be careful with the things that we say, the things that we write, even the things that we say to ourselves silently, Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's a tricky thing. And so my mother understood this because, I mean, this is a woman who basically is like 1960s, 70s hippie, right? Black hippie type, you know? And so as you can see, right, there's like the psychics and the readings and the mantras. And this is all very early. This is before the, the, the you know, all of these things have now been commodified and are really strange and, and, you know, very en vogue, right, these days. But back then as a little kid growing up in my neighborhood, it was important that my mother convinced me that I could do anything because she felt like if I believed that I could do anything, then I could, despite the challenges the world might have for me, uh, because I was a black boy, because I'm a human in the world, right? Life is complicated. You know, she wanted to make sure that I knew that the world was whatever I wanted the world to be and that I could design my own life, mm. right? That I could be the architect of my sort of human experience. 
that's a powerful thing to tell a child because as I got older and it was time for me to sort of take on a career or do this in school or do that, I only know that I can do anything. So I don't have any fear when it comes to trying anything or learning anything or like I don't have any of that because that mantra is sort of tethered to my vertebrae in a different way. Is it true that you sometimes still whisper it to yourself? Of course. Of course. Of <laughs> I read course, that and I was like, oh, I wonder if that's true. That is true. That is true. Especially in moments of doubt, right? I'm, I'm, still, a, I'm still a person who, who carries his insecurities, right? Like that's just a part of who we are as, 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 as human animals, right? And my insecurities are very real, very real. And I try to make sure people know that. I think sometimes we, we look at our, our, our heroes and, and, and we forget sometimes that they have vulnerabilities and weaknesses and insecurities that they too struggle with very basic things, right? And I think in those moments, I can do anything. It's something that, that I can always sort of run back to as an anchor. You've written about how your father was impossibly cool. Uh, he was covered in tattoos. He wore gold chains. He rode motorcycles. He had guitars and wore tight pants. And he was also a psychiatrist and the director of a mental health clinic. And I read that when you were a little boy, he wanted you to be comfortable around anyone who was neuroatypical or had addiction issues. And he often had patients over for dinner, which is rather atypical as well. What was your reaction to all of this? You know, as a, as a kid, I just thought it was all very normal. I, it's so funny. I, I look back on it all now and, you know, we'd have family barbecues and my father's clients would come to the barbecue, you know, and, it, and some of them were, were, were living with schizophrenia or addictions and you know, bipolar two and all sorts of things that honestly never seemed strange or abnormal because they're not strange and abnormal, right? And that was his point. He wanted us to make sure that we were okay with the fact that people's brains all work differently, including the people in our immediate family, right? My older brother lived with all sorts of things. I live with my own mental illness. My father had his own, right? And so I think his goal with that was to humanize everyone, and to make sure that we understood that no one is any better or any worse than anyone else uh, and that our brains do what our brains do, but our lives on this planet are all valuable lives, you know, and, and, and it was, that was a gift. You know, he also, he, to his credit, he also, because he was all the, he was this very macho man, right? He, the, the gold chains, the tattoos, the motorcycles, he, he really was all the cigars, right? He, he, he was the quintessential bad boy, but he was very affectionate specifically toward his sons. He, he kissed his boys. It was a big deal for him. And the reason why I bring this up is because I think about my, my, my upbringing and I think about how my friends started to come out to me when I was very young, uh, seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade. My male friends began to tell me that they were gay, many of them, all of which were absolutely fine. And as far as I was concerned, like it was no big deal. As I got older, though, and you continue to sort of traverse homophobic spaces, which coming from my community was a normal thing, right? It was a, that was the stand, homophobia was a standard. Um, and as you sort of traverse the strange gauntlet of homophobia, you start to wonder, at least me, I started to wonder, why is it that I've never had a problem? And then I think back to my father. It is never strange for a man to kiss a man, not to me, because my father kissed us so much. Right? He was so affectionate. No, nothing seemed strange about this as a young person. It never registered as different because it wasn't different in my household. 
you know, my father who is now Ghana, you know, I'm forever grateful for, for that, for sure. You've talked about how when you were 10 years old and in the seventh grade, your whole life changed. Mm. Your parents split up. You started at a new school. This is when you first began being bullied. It was also the first time you ever started to fail. You gave up reading. Your grandmother died. But it was also when you started to write. So I wanted to sort of talk about that that time. Take us back to that year. It's interesting. Seventh grade was sixth and seventh grade were when my my life really blew up as well. Um, my parents had gotten divorced right before that, but my mom got remarried to a man who was brutal to us, and and everything changed. Everything changed. It's sort of a before and after line in my life. Talk about what you were going through and how you thought about it all. Yeah, it, it was the, the, the worst and best year of my life. The first piece of context to that time, though, is that I was younger than I was supposed to be for that age, right? For that grade. Yeah. So I was, a, I was a 10-year-old in the seventh grade. I had skipped a grade back in second grade. I skipped because I just had like advanced skills in certain ways, and I was going to fail. If they didn't skip me, I was going to fail because I was bored to death and refused to do anything. And my birthday is in December. So because of that, for the rest of my academic career, I was two years behind everybody else. So when I get to, so at 10 years old, I start middle school. My parents split, my father moves out. And because he moves out, he becomes the enemy because he's the person who left. Of course, we know it's more complicated than that. I learned much later down the line as you get older, right? It's, it's not quite as simple, but because he's the one who physically left the, 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 the habitat, He's the enemy, right? So I'm dealing with that abandonment. And he was the coolest dad ever. So it also was a shock because I never saw my parents fighting. And they were like these loving, very affectionate, very fun and cool people who suddenly were no longer together, right? So my life was upside down. Then what happens is I start a new school because my older brother took so many lumps in middle school. My mom was like, I'm not sending you to the neighborhood school. I just can't run the risk. Your father's not here to sort of keep his hand on you. The streets are calling right? All of this stuff. And so she put me in Catholic school, which coming from my neighborhood was a no-no, right? It's like, now I got to wear a uniform. I got to deal with like my, my neighborhood friends and like people are like, would you go to that? You know, why you don't go to school with us no more? All of this kind of stuff, right? And then I get to the Catholic school and I'm outside of my neighborhood. I'm meeting new people, and I, and, but I'm smaller than everybody else uh, because I'm younger than everybody else. And so the bullying begins, and I had to deal with that. And then on top of all of these things, and I'm dealing with the grief of my parents split, so I'm not doing well in school. And the school is a bit more rigorous than I'm used to. And so like, I'm just struggling, I'm, I'm failing, and I'm, I'm having a hard time. I'm trying to figure out how to be cool, which then causes me to posture. Uh, and, and I'm dealing with overcompensation, right? I should also note my older brother, who was my hero, is also suffering in life, right? He's been stabbed. He's lost. I mean, all kinds of like, it was just one of those years, you know? And then my grandmother dies. And so now I'm dealing with the first time I'm seeing my mother, the strongest person I know, broken. Right? Because even in the midst of the divorce, she was able to sort of hold it together for the kids. Right? But in the, with the death of her mother, I think that was sort of the final straw. And it broke her down. It was the first time I heard my mother cry. And all I knew to do was to write down a few words because I had spent so many years... Actually, I had spent that year discovering rap lyrics. So all this is the same thing. This is the same year. That 10th that year of my life is also when I start reading rap lyrics. 
And that sort of was opening my mind up to the, to the possibilities of language, sort of evoking feeling and emotion and, and mental and emotional change. All of this is happening this, at the same time. And so when my mother begins to cry, I go to the one thing that's been helping me, which are these rap lyrics, and I write down a few lines, not thinking anything of it, just thinking like, this is all I have to offer my hero. And she prints it on the back of the funeral program. They read it at the funeral and my life changes forever. The funny thing about this, though, is also because this is my 10th year, everything I do, that's really the year that I'm pulling from. All these books, yes, the character might be 12 or 14 or 16 or 18, but I'm sort of arrested in that 10th year. Um, I even ask people all the time, like, what, what would you thank your 10-year-old self for? You know, when you what look back- What would you thank your 10-year-old self for? What would you say? I would thank my 10-year-old self for his hopefulness, right? For his fortitude that he shouldn't have had to have. For his ability to, even in the midst of all the pressures of it all, to carve out who he was and to be firm in that, right? Like, I only could overcompensate for a few months before I told my mother, I can't, I don't want no more name brand clothes. It ain't my jam. You ain't got to buy me all of the, let them tease me. They'll get over it. Right? Like I was in the seventh grade yeah, making bold decisions. Like, you know what? I'm, I just got to be me and I got to deal with me and I got to deal with what's going on. And I'm grateful for that. You know, I'm grateful for that kid because that's the same kid that I am today. Deep down inside, I'm the same kid who was fighting for his own individualism, who was trying to, to have his own voice be his own voice in the world every day of my life. Do you remember what the words were that you wrote the poem for your grandmother? I don't, and my mother can't find the program. Um, oh. And so I don't remember what those words were. And that's okay, because I remember how I felt to hear them out loud and then to have family members come to me and say they made me feel something. And at 10 years old, to get that kind of affirmation, it creates a different kind of um, a, a serotonin that is very different. And, and that is what propelled me, because I just wanted to feel that again. I wanted to feel useful. After you wrote that poem, you began to write poems for every one of your uh, grandmother's siblings as they passed. Mm. You've talked about how listening to Queen Latifah's Black Rain changed your life. Mm -hmm. In what way? In a few ways. Number one, I, I was raised by a bunch of women. And Queen Latifah reminded me of the women that I, that I was raised by in terms of like, she's a woman, but there's a moxie there. I come from razor blade tongue women, women who were very sharp and very strong, women with some knuckle to them, right? And, and I'm proud of that, you know, I'm proud of that. And it wasn't easy coming from that family. It wasn't always easy because, as you said, they didn't suffer fools. These were the kinds of women who weren't the most sensitive women uh, because they couldn't be. The environment wouldn't allow for that. Their, their, their backgrounds wouldn't allow for that. And so as, as the little boy in the household, as the little boy in the family, you know, I was taught toughness by the women in my life. Queen Latifah, she felt tough to me and not tough in a way that was mean, tough in a way that was protective, tough in a way that was constitutional. Right. And I loved it. Her's the sound of her voice. And then when you got down to sort of the, the raps themselves, the language and the lyrics themselves, I just fell in love with what she was doing. I fell in love with her ability to tell stories, her ability to make statements, right, to say the thing, right, to draw a line in the sand using language. Uh, I just fell in love. I, and then to see her 
and to see her with the, the, the cap to the back, right, and a t-shirt, medallions, and the, 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 the key hanging from her ear, to see her on the back of a motorcycle that she was driving, right, I come from that kind of family. She felt familiar, and if she could do what she was doing with that, with that language, then so could I. You once suggested that maybe Queen Latifah's Ladies First and Maya Angelou's Phenomenal Woman are the same thing, just a generation apart. Mm. And I'm wondering if you still feel that way. I do. I do. Not only do I feel that way, I feel like those two poems are in conversation. I feel like Tupac's Dear Mama and Langston Hughes' Mother to Son are in conversation. I feel like Nikki Giovanni's Ego Tripping is in conversation with all of hip-hop, right? All of hip-hop, right? Which is this sort of braggadocious. It's, the, it's this idea that like, yo, I am it. I am, right? Like, yes, I am ego-tripping because I am it. <laughs> you know what I mean? And and that is hip-hop to its core. I feel like many of the stories that we read are beautiful. Ta- like, I mean, you take somebody like Walter Mosley or Chester Himes and you put them up against Slick Rick, it's the same. And, and it's a music, by the way, that is rooted in, in necessity, in desperation, and in innovation. I, I always refer to it like hip-hop is, it's like a dyslexic version of all the other art forms, proving that to see a thing differently is a beautiful thing, right? That though it may complicate the way that we look at quote-unquote language or story, that that new complication of it creates a new beauty, Right. Like yeah. it is the you see what I'm saying? Like and I, I just Absolutely. I, I love it. I love it. I love it. Even in the midst of its problems, I too have those problems. I am that problem as well. In what way? For instance, I can speak out against the misogyny of hip hop, but I can only speak out against the misogyny of hip hop if I'm willing to accept that it exists inside of me. Okay. I understand. Yeah. Right? I, I am anti-misogyny, but it does not mean, it, it, it is foolish for me to believe that misogyny doesn't exist in my bones, that it isn't in my psyche, even if I don't want it to be there and I work very hard to keep it down and to fight against it and to deconstruct it. But the only way we could do that is if we admit that the world in which we were, I was raised in, that misogyny was birthed in me the moment I was birthed in this country in the environments in which I was raised in. Well, it's the way that we're socialized. Absolutely. I mean, I think Roxanne talks about that in Bad Feminist. That's what makes her, so, so, so to speak, a bad feminist, liking rap music and, and exactly. enjoying the lyrics while knowing that they are misogynistic or any number of things. Exactly. Um, yeah. So if I know that, then I can critique this music, but I also can acknowledge that the, that the complexity of the music in the midst of all of these, like the goods and the bads are the same complexities that exist in me. Right? The goods and the bad. It's all there. And that I can critique this music and I can hate portions of it or, or dislike portions of it, just like I dislike portions of me. Mm-hmm. And if I'm not willing to kill me or dismiss me or, or put me on the shelf, then I'm also not willing to sort of dismiss all this music that has saved so many lives, despite its complicated nature, is all I'm Absolutely. saying. Absolutely. How did rap influence your own writing? Rhythm. My work is churning. Right. Like at least I want it to be. It's there's a rhythm there. James Brown always said to him that every instrument was a drum, which is the reason why everything in his band sounded percussive. Right. And that's how the funk was born. To me, everything is a poem, which means that everything has meter and rhythm. Everything. Everything I write. If it's an essay, it's a poem. If it's a novel, it's a poem. For me, everything is poetry, which means everything has rhythm and meter. Right. And that comes from what I learned 
growing up in, in rap music, right? That everything has this sort of like, there got to be a little bass there. There got to be something to push it, right? You're supposed to feel that thing in your, in your stomach. That is how I want my work to feel. And that is what I, I mean, it is to be read aloud as far as I'm concerned, right? You know how we talk about Shakespeare and we're like, Shakespeare is to be seen, right? For me, I feel like my work is to be read aloud. In the last couple of weeks, as I have been researching your history and reading your work, I've spent a lot of time saying, wait, Roxanne, you have to hear this. You have to hear this. <laughs> and you could ask her about that because I would literally, she'd be writing or she'd be doing something and I'd run into the room and like, listen to this. And yeah. I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, you had several teachers that made a big difference in your life, and I'd like to talk with you about them. There are two in particular. Miss um, Blaufaz, uh, she was a teacher you initially hated. Um, <laughs> so, so why did you hate her? And, and then how did that relationship transform over the time that you were taught by her? I, I hated Miss Blaufaz because I was 13, and Miss Blaufaz was mean. Right? Like, I didn't like Miss Blaufus because Miss Blaufus was the first teacher, that, in, in, at least in high school, that was willing to hold us accountable. And when you're 13 years old, the one thing you don't want is to be held accountable. And the one thing that you want more than anything is to be held accountable. This is sort of the tricky part about being an early teenager. And Miss Blaufus was that kind of person. She wanted to make sure she set the standard and the tone of what this class was going to be. And to do that, she just wasn't willing to, to deal with none of the nonsense. But all we wanted to do was exude nonsense. Uh, so the first day of class, I come home and I'm like, Ma, you got to get me out of there. You got to free me from Miss <laughs> Blaufus. I have got to get out of there because I already knew she was going to be tough on all of us. My mother, in, in her infinite wisdom, was like, Jason, it's the first day of class. It is impossible for you to know what this is going to be. And of course, I'm a, a, a precocious kid. And I'm like, you taught me to trust my gut. My gut is telling me <laughs> Miss Blaufus ain't the one, you know. And it turned out that Miss Blaufus was, was one of the greatest gifts I would ever have as a teacher because she was the first person to acknowledge my ability. She was the one, the first person outside of my mother to ever say to me, you can write. And I wasn't doing that well in her class. That's yeah, the, I, that. That's the thing about it. That's what I always and, and I'm Miss Bluffers is my friend. Miss Bluffers lived down the street from me. We talk periodically, and I, it's always good to see her. But I, that's the one thing about her that I'll always respect is that Miss Bluffers. I wasn't doing that well in her class, but she was able to give me constructive criticism and, and to acknowledge my abilities, even if she couldn't give me an A. Right? It was like, look, you won't follow directions, or you didn't you know, do the assignment, but I can acknowledge the fact that your technical ability, there's something happening, right? There's something there and your creativity, there's something happening. As a matter of fact, she even started a creative writing class and she took eight students, handpicked, and that was when I started to learn form and all the variations of, of poetry. I started to read things I had never read before, things that I didn't think interest me. She even told my mom, hey, if he goes to college, try to find a school with a good writing program. Like, he's got the thing. I'll always be grateful for her. Yeah, and, and for all of you listening, if you read the Spider-Man book, if you read Miles Morales, she is in the book. She is the yeah. teacher in that book. And, uh, you, I, and you use her name. It's I use Ms. her Blavis. name. I use her name because I wanted to pay homage to a woman that, without her, I don't know if this would have happened. Because you just need one person to believe. One person outside of your family, right, to believe that there is a there there. 
You Absolutely. Know? Yeah. I had a teacher like that in college. Changed my life. First person that ever made me feel like I was smart. It'll do it, right? You only need one. Well, the other teacher I want to talk with you about is Mr. Williams, who you described in the following way. He was skinny, stark white. He had a bowl haircut. He wore khakis, a pair of Jordans or high top Nikes. He had a shirt tucked in and he wore weird wool ties with a blunt bottom. You stated that everybody hated him, but he did that intentionally. Mm. Why did he do that intentionally? Mr. Williams... One of the most peculiar geniuses I've ever known. He did that because he wanted to sort of set you up. He wanted to teach like what happens when you when you sort of have preconceived notions and expectations about people and then you meet them and realize that you never really know a person until you do, right? And so he would do things to, if you were a freshman, sophomore, or junior, Every time he saw you, he would pick on you. He would sort of poke at you. He would give you detentions, right? Mind you, this is a person who I look back now and I realize that, like, he was always aware that none of this actually matters. Me giving you detentions is not going to affect your life, right? It's interesting, right? Because we always had this idea, like, what is, what is, what about my permanent record? What permanent record? No one's ever shown me where are these records, right? That our whole <laughs> lives we've been terrified of, right? Like, oh no, it's going to go on your permanent record. Mr. Williams was fully aware that none of these detentions meant anything. <laughs> and so he would dole them out. <laughs> he would just dole them out. Like, you go into detention, you're late. He would, he would make you late. He would, he would do things like if you had a book, if you were taking books out of your locker, he would run up to you and he would, push the book all the way to the other end of the hallway so you had to be late and then he would give you a detention and we would all be upset why did he do that so that when you finally got into his class when you were a senior and you and you had to take his class for the most part all of us had to take his class it was called global studies you would walk in that class angry and upset and annoyed and then he could just slap you in the face with all this love it was the biggest bait and switch ever Right. Because all he really wanted to do was get you real angry with him so that when you came to his class, it would be such a stark difference when you got to actually know him. Right. That was, it was all a set. But that's how he was. It was all about like, how can I teach you? Because that's really how it goes. Right. That's what happened with me and Ms. Blaufus. He was really teaching us this is how life is. There are people who antagonize you. But when you get to know them a little better, oftentimes they're actually okay. They're still lovable. And sometimes they even love you. Parents do this, right? Like, yo, you're mad at your parents because they're doing things that that you feel like are unfair. And then you get a little closer or you get a little older and you realize that like, yeah, some of that stuff felt unfair, but nobody loved you like them. Nobody taught you about the world like they were going to teach you about the world. And on top of all of that, he just had a strange sense of humor. He just honestly was also just a troll, right? He just was a guy who was like, this is all fun and games for him. Because he knew that he was the best teacher in the school. He knew that. It was kind of like, this is all fun and games. And when you get here, you'll realize it's fine. It's fine. You know, he was a teacher that the first day of class, the first thing you learn, he writes on the board, ethnocentricity. That's his class number one, right? And we go through the definition of ethnocentricity. Imagine that. All our school time, we're learning about math and science. And then we get to his class and we learn about what it is to be human. One of the stories that I found in my research was you talking about the fish story from that class. And I cannot stop thinking about it. I cannot stop thinking about that story. If you can share that, I'd really appreciate it. I think it will impact our listeners in the same way that it's impacted me. Of course. 
uh, one day we came to class and Mr. Williams had, uh, <laughs> he had a, a, a tropical fish in a bag. And he said, uh, this is going to be the class pet. He had an aquarium set up. He said, this is going to be a class pet, but we're all seniors. And so obviously as seniors, you're like, what are we, we're too old for this, right? But he's like, no, no, no. Like, this is a class pet. Don't worry about it. Like, it's, it's going to be great. I want you all to feed it when you come to class every day. You feed it. I want you all to name it. And this is going to be our, the class mascot. And so, okay, we'll, we'll go along with it. And he said, the only rule is nobody can put your hands in the tank. Nobody can touch the fish. No fingers can be on the fish. I know how you all are. No playing around, no jokes, no pranks. Do not touch the fish by any means, by, like, no matter what. No means should you ever touch this fish. And if you do, this is a non-negotiable. If you do, you will be suspended. Okay, Mr. Williams, that's fine. Nobody wants to touch the fish. A week or two later, uh, some time passes and we come to class and Mr. Williams walks over to the fish tank and he takes the fish out of the tank and he puts it on the floor. And everybody jumps up and we gather around and we're mortified. Everyone is mortified and confused, right? We're like, what is he, what is happening right now? And he just is sort of watching and waiting as the fish flops around and is gasping for breath. And finally, two young ladies run over and they grab that fish. They, they pick it up and they, they sort, of, sort of juggle it back into the tank. And the fish survives and we're all like, whew, that was weird and close. And what are you doing, Mr. Williams? And Mr. Williams very calmly says, um, young ladies, please get your bags and, and head on down to the principal's office. You are suspended. And of course, they're like losing their minds. And they're like, are you kidding? What are you, what are you saying? Like, this isn't, what, what are you doing? And he's like, I know you're upset. I know you're upset, but please, please exit the room. Like, I get it. You're mad, but please do as I ask and go down to the principal's office and uh, call your parents and, and you, are, you are suspended. And as they're leaving the room, he pokes his head out and he says, but hold your heads up because you did the right thing. But sometimes doing the right thing has consequences. Um, there were two things I learned that day. One, I had to sit there for the rest of the day in my cowardice. I had to stew in my cowardice that I didn't have the chutzpah to get up and save that fish, though everything in me was telling me to. And two, I learned that it is always women. Really? It is always women who save the fish in our, re in, in our everyday lives. I mean, historically, right? We can run through every social movement. We can run through, we can run through what's happening right now in today's mm -hmm. time, right? It's always women who make the sacrifice, even if they don't get the credit for it, right? Even if we have male figureheads who get gunned down, we know that, right? But there are women who are behind those people turning those wheels. There are women who are part of the planning committees. There are women who are laying their bodies down, who are sacrificing time with their children. There are women, there are always women who save the fish. And, uh, and I'll never, ever forget it. And every day of my life, I wake up and I choose to save that fish every day from, from there forward. I think about that probably twice a week, twice a week. As a matter of fact, Mr. Williams, who is still a very, very good friend of mine. And we, we are very close. And um, recently I was hanging, I was at his beach house and we were chatting. And he said, uh, <laughs> he stopped doing the fish experiment uh, maybe five years before he retired because there was one student who said, this is animal cruelty. She was correct. And, and so he, he cut it out. But he said that before he retired, someone came to visit him from 20 years prior or 30 years prior. And she said, uh, I want to show you something. She pulled out a little slip, and it was the suspension referral. Oh. And she said, I saved the fish, and I never forgot. I still have the suspension. Like, imagine that all these years later, she held on 
to, like, it, it was a, it was life changing for hundreds of thousands of students over the years. And, and I tell that story as often as possible because I hope for, I hope it'll be life changing for young people and for adults. Now there's a, there's a hashtag sometimes I see pop up on Twitter. Uh, it'll say save the fish. It's a thing, right? Like save the yeah. fish, you know? Yeah. When you were 16 years old, you self-published your first book and you began selling it out of the trunk of your mother's car. Mm-hmm. W- was that the book, Let Me Speak? That was. And it's so weird that you know this. I, I feel like... <laughs> I feel like... <laughs> um, well, it's, it wasn't that hard to find. Um, well, tell us what the book was about and, and how did you make copies of it? And how did you go about selling it? Back then it was different. I was... 15 when I started it, 16 when it came, when, it, when, I, when, I, when I was selling it. It goes back to my mother, you know, I can do anything. There was nothing in me that ever felt like I couldn't just make what I wanted to make or do what I wanted to do or go where I wanted to go or say what I wanted to say, right? I just never had any of that, any of those sort of hangups. And so I, I remember telling my mom, like, yo, I want to make a book. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to publish a book. And so I, at that point, I was all over the East Coast as a 16-year-old. This is when spoken word was becoming, it was, it was still like an underground thing. It hadn't really exploded yet. We're talking about like 98, 99 around that time. And so it's about to explode, right? It's about to explode. It's still a thing that everybody's doing, but it hasn't hit like the mainstream. It's a bunch of just young, artsy, bohemian kids getting together at grimy open mics and just doing their thing, right? Everyone has on brown and green and smells like patchouli and then, right? Like that was sort of the, the vibe, you know? And I was, I was one of the young people in that scene. And so I would be in Philly and I'll be in DC and I would be in New York and I would be in Richmond and I write like as a 16 year old driving my mom's car, just getting busy. This is back where you can get a license at 16, obviously. And I'm just getting busy doing my thing because I knew who I wanted to be and what I wanted to do. And I realized that everywhere I went, they were all selling books, right? They're all in their twenties and thirties. They're all selling books. And so I'm like, I got to make a book too. I meet this woman in Baltimore. Uh, a good friend of mine still, Maisha Cherry, who at the time was 21, right? And she's like, yo, I started a publishing company and I'm going to publish like just our friends. And Maisha was the one who was like, I want to make this book with you. Let's do it. And really, it was a vanity press, right? Really what that, what that meant was Maisha was going to format it and put it in the files and then I was going to pay for it to be printed up, right? That's, and she was going to take care of the ISP. that's pretty ambitious for a 15-year-old, a publishing Absolutely. company, your Absolutely. own imprint. <laughs> yeah, that's what it was. And I was like, let's do it. And so we did that. I worked, I had a summer job. I remember, I think it cost me $500 to print a thousand books books or 500 books or something like that. Were they like Xeroxed and stapled? Did you have them bound? And No, this was like a real deal. Like we, I found a printer. We found a printer out of Florida called Whitehall Publishing or something like that. They're out of business now. And they were just a, a family business that did actual like bound books. I paid them 500 bucks. They sent me a thousand books and I sold them out of the trunk of my mom's car. And that's how I started to make money. And I did that a few times over, right? That was the beginning of of my life as a bookmaker. It's incredible that you did that. Do you still have copies of this? I do. My mom has like three or four. I have one around the house somewhere. My mom has one of the poems on the wall in the house because she's my mom, right? I try not to look at it. It's juvenilia, you know? It's hard to to read some of that stuff. But it's evidence. It's evidence of of your being 15 and the yeah. ambition to publish and create this, this it's, it's extraordinary. I mean, I think, I think it's the first brick and whatever castle I'm building. And I look at it as sort of, this is the sign of a kid 
hungry for life, right? Somebody with a lot of grit, a lot of sort of persistence. Like nobody was going to tell that kid that he couldn't do anything. Yeah, I believe you self-published two books. Um, Three books. Three books. Okay. Um, You went to the University of Maryland, and yet you almost failed out of college in your freshman year. I did. I did. I mean, I mean, it's it's tricky. You, I come out of high school, even with those great teachers, you know, Ms. Blaufus and Mr. Williams. But I wasn't prepared for college. I'm 16 years old. That's young. Yeah. I'm not quite firm in my education. I don't really know too much because I wasn't that great of a high school student, right? It's not like I was... <laughs> you know, a straight A kid or anything like that. I wasn't in an honor society or any of that kind of stuff. I I, I was I was so a you get, were a publisher. <laughs> I was yeah, you know, I was I was doing that part, but I was I was a get by kind of kid when it came to school. And I get to college and, and the first class is English one oh one and I and I bomb it, right? I fail it terribly. I fail it a few times. Not only am I failing English, but I'm failing math. And I'm in remedial. I'm in like pre-remedial, right? So I'm in, this isn't like math 101. This is like the math you have to take before you get to math 101, right? And, and I'm failing that too, right? <laughs> and, uh, and so it was, it was clear after my first semester that college was going to be a struggle for me, that I was in over my head, that I was, that I, yeah, I wasn't prepared for this, for, for whatever that world was, that that kind of academic world, I just wasn't ready for it. But what I was ready for was the social element. I was ready to attack the world and attack that that sort of this sort of bubble, this sort of bubbled space, this bubbled environment where I could literally build an ecosystem. Right. That made more sense to me than classwork. That made more sense to me than tests and examinations or transcripts. Right. I understood that all of the currency was outside of the classroom in a contained ecosystem that I could sort of like scrap my way to the top of whatever the hierarchy was using this grit that like caused me to make these books or, you know, run up and down the East Coast as a child reciting poems in rooms full of 30-year-olds, right? Whatever that was, it was going to be sort of exacerbated and, and pushed to the extreme on that college campus. And that's what I really used college for. You also finally discovered reading because up until that point in your life, you hadn't, you, though you published three, self-published sure. three of your own books, sure. you hadn't actually ever read a book from beginning to end. And I believe it was when you were 17, yeah. you finally did. And it was Richard Wright's landmark 1945 novel, Black Boy, about a mm-hmm. boy growing up in the American South. I I think it feels somewhat obvious as to what compelled you to finish it. What inspired you to start it? Just a, a teacher, a professor saying that that I needed to get my life together, right? And that I, and that reading was more valuable and more important than sort of numerical scores and grades, even though that's really all I thought reading was about because because that's really what reading was about. That's the problem with the academy, right? Like the, the tricky part about education in America is that everything is a means to an end. Yeah. I mean, that's what happens when you grade people. That, that's it, right? Everything is a means to an end. And so for me, reading was a means to an end. Uh, this teacher, though, he, he explained to me that reading was far more than that. That reading was one of the only things in the world that could actually strengthen the mind, that it could expose and open a human being up to things that they'd never be exposed and open to simply by reading these words on the page. That it could teach one persistence and discipline, um, that it could expand vocabulary. And the expansion of that vocabulary meant the expansion 
of interpersonal communication skills and your expansion and inter- interpersonal communication skills meant the divestment from violence, right? Like, like these, these simple sort of equations when you really put it together it, and, that, and that reading also could teach one how to listen better and how to listen better to themselves, right? How to hear their own voices clearly. And it could sort of stoke the imagination. All of this, right? It has nothing to do with, with grades, it's a, right. it's, it is it is a, it should be criminal the way reading has been whittled uh, and distilled hyper distilled down to a letter grade for for young people absolutely i I run a graduate program at the School of Visual Arts and I won't give grades it's pass or fail and when people ask for feedback I'm like don't you know how you're doing exactly don't you know how you're doing I mean this is we're talking about we're talking about one of the greatest forms of alchemy to ever exist in the world. When it comes to like, that's what you're reading. You're reading someone else's alchemy, right? Right? Like this is like the greatest series of secret codes ever, and we treat it like homework, right? That was where the shift came, and that that was, and it's, and that's the thing that I've held on to more than anything, in, in college is is that, gosh, man, that that reading and writing is basically sort of acknowledging the architecture of the world. You met Jason Griffin at college. He was your roommate, and mm-hmm. you've been friends ever since. You've written two books together. What was that first meeting like? I could only imagine the alchemy that occurred in that room. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. It was. It, you know, I and and so he and I. That third self-published book, it was with him. So that's that's the third book that doesn't. No one really knows about that one. Oh, that's the book self. That's the book. Well, of course, you know about it because clearly you've combed my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, I but, like to understand the arc so that I could ask, I could sort of understand the sort of, I don't know, DNA of a person's experience. And no, no, it's, it's, I'm, really I'm so talk impressed. About it. I should Thank have known you. this was going to happen. I've listened to this show for years. I'm like, I, I, but it's different when it's you. It's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> like, but I, um, Jason and I, I don't believe in soulmates in a singular sense. I do believe in soulmates, though. Pluralized the idea that there are many people who are soulmates in your life, uh, and that they're not always romantic partners. Right. Jason is one of my soulmates, and that became a very clear thing the day we met, the moment we met. You know, I was, I had, I think I had, I had won the talent show, the University of Maryland, which is where we went. They had this talent show, and I won the talent show. Just got to campus. This is freshman year, first semester. This is my coming out party, right? Like I'm, I'm here. I've been working on this. I've been doing this for a long time. I'm pretty sharp. I'm ready to rock. I get on, the, I get on the stage and I, I recite my poem. And this poem wins the talent show, which is, which never happens back then, right? Nowadays, poetry, spoken word, and all of that is a very different thing. Back then, it was still like, what? If you ain't a singer, you ain't winning no talent show, right? And so I win this talent show, but I have no friends. So I go to the to the dining hall. And I'm, I'm a pretty self-contained kind of guy anyway, in general. And I'm going to have dinner alone, right? I'm just going to sit and have some chicken fingers and, and decompress after winning a talent show. And he's in there with all these people gathered around him and he's holding court, right? Because that's the kind of person he, like this opening scene of our relationship is literally who we have always been. If you ever see me in public, I'm usually alone. If you ever see me at a party, I'm talking to one person at a time. I'm just a really kind of, I'm, I'm shy. I'm naturally shy. I'm naturally introverted. Jason is the exact opposite, right? He's always going to be, he's the life of the party. He's Mr. Person. Now he's very gregarious. So he's like doing his thing and everybody's laughing and he's just going for it. 
and I'm just eating my food on the other side of the room. He sees me and he comes over and he says, yo, aren't you the dude who just won the talent show? For those of you who don't know what Jason looks like, this is a a white boy, you know, he's he's your, your, your Irishman for sure, you know, white boy, bright red, this time, I mean like bright red hair. And he's so, he's always, at least back then, he's super well-dressed and like very charismatic, you know, and he's like, yo, you just won the talent show. And I was like, yeah, yeah. At the time, I have on one of these crocheted hats that I've been making since I was a kid. He's like, yo, I like that hat, man. You know, and I was like, oh, word, I made this, you know. And in that moment, he realizes like, what? So he sits down, leaves his crowd of friends, right? He sits down and we talk for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. And the following year, he was like, yo, I got seniority. I got a dorm room with an air conditioner. I know you living in the hot building. You want to just move in with me? And I said, of course. And that was the beginning of a friendship and a, a business partnership, a creative partnership, a brotherhood. Um, my life changed forever the day I met Jason Griffin, for sure. You initially made your first book, which combined your words with his illustrations and used your own money, maxed out your credit cards to like mm-hmm. the tune of $30,000 to get the books printed. Why did you feel like you had to do that to get a book deal? Or or did you do that in, in lieu of getting a book deal? You ultimately got a book deal together. But what provoked you to self-publish the book at that time? This is before the internet was the internet. Publishing has always been super mysterious because no one has ever had any access to it. So books just seem to exist, right? It's like you don't, no one know unless you know a writer, which... None of us did, or a publisher, which none of us did, or an editor, which none of us did. You don't really know how books are made. You do now because we have the internet. But this is back before everything was Googleable. Not everybody even had a website. This right. is bef- this is before uh, social media. Like Facebook didn't even exist. This is yep. before the iPhone. This is before, before all MySpace. <laughs> exactly, right? Like MySpace was new and was all very personal. Nobody was using it for like like businesses didn't have MySpace. Publishing companies didn't have MySpace accounts, right? Publishing companies have Instagrams. You see what I'm saying? Like now, yeah. right? But back then yeah. it was walled off in a certain way. And so we we thought what we were doing was publishing a book. You know, we thought this was what it was. And and so we and, and, and we knew that what we were making was so sort of strange and, you know, it was sort of ambitious. And we were like, nobody's going to be able to do it like we're going to do it. Because we're at that age where that sort of 19, 20, 21 age is the perfect amount of ego. (laughs) Right? Because it's just enough ego for you to believe that everything you make is genius. And the truth is, it's usually not genius, but there is always something ingenious in it. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And the moxie and the sort of gumption to be like, we're going to do whatever we want to do because we are geniuses is what you need to get to wherever you're going. Right. You got to mm-hmm. have some of that. Right. And that's just who we were. And Jason refused because he's an artist. He's an artist artist. He refused to compromise on the quality of his art. I didn't care about what, where the words went, what kind of paper they were on. or But Jason was like, no, no, no. It needs to be silk pages. The saturation of the ink needs to be this, this, and this, right? And so we just were really particular about making a beautiful thing and not skimping on ourselves. And I'm a guy who was already making books. So I understood that. I'm like, look, okay, let's make a thing that we can be proud of. Um, nobody would print it. 
So we ended up having to go with a printer that used to print for the Smithsonian, right? And they're like, oh, we can do it. We can handle it. And uh, But it would cost us 30 grand. Oh, my God. <laughs> so we just oh did it. Oh, my God. <laughs> and that was it, you know? And that was it. And the whole book is about two, two young men. I mean, both of us had gone through our first heartbreaks. And we were writing about self-forgiveness and, and, and mm. self-acceptance and self-awareness and self-discipline and self, right? That's why the book is called Self. And we modeled it after an album. So there's 16 pieces in that book. And then there's like uh, there's 16 poems and art pieces of art. And then there's this other section where we sort of like give a little bit of context about the, the pieces. And then there's this back section where it's the making of the book, right? And we did all of this because of our obsession with rap music and albums. And so we did it as if it were liner notes. Yeah. And that's what it is. Well, the book got you an agent. It did. That agent found you an editor at HarperCollins, and they contracted with you to make a new book. You titled it, My Name is Jason, Mine Too. You were 21 years old. What were your expectations at that point for this new book? Well, the first thing I'd say is, all we know is the, the stories of the music industry. Like I said, no one knows anything about the literary industry, especially if you're coming from where we're coming from. <laughs> and so the first thing we do when we go into the meeting with the publisher, we're, we're, we go to the meeting with our guards up. Mind you, we haven't eaten a decent meal in two years, probably. And, <laughs> and we go to, well, a year, a year, actually, about a year. And we go into this place, this fancy Chinese restaurant in the middle of Manhattan. And she says to us, order anything you want. And we're so nervous because we like, we, she can't really mean that. Our clothes are all oversized because we've lost so much weight struggling in New York City. And she's like, no, no, guys, really order anything. It's on the publishing company, right? So this is the first thing. And we're like, what? So we start to eat everything, right? But we have our guards up because we think that the literary industry is going to be like the music industry and they're going to try to change us. So we're like, so we're, we're like whatever you're going to say, just don't try to change us. And the first thing this editor, Joanna Kotler is her name, the first thing she says is, the first thing I want you all to know is that I don't want to change you. I just want to teach you how to make a book that actually works, right? I want to teach you how to take this raw talent, this raw sort of vision you have, and help you shape it and mold it into a sellable thing. And, and at that point, I don't know, I, I don't know what to expect. Because this is all brand new. We, I've been doing this on my own for so long, and he'd been doing it on his own for so long, that we didn't know what this meant. Except for the fact that we were supposed to be rich, right? <laughs> we were very wrong about that part. <laughs> but for the next three years, this woman took us under her wing and she taught us how to make a book, how to really make a book. She taught me narrative arc. She taught me how to write a story. This is all happening in the making of My Name is Jason Mine too. I'll never be able to repay her for that, even though that book did not sell. Came out and nobody was interested in it. And, you know, we look back now and we think it may have been a little too soon, a little early, a little before its time. Um, but it got us in the game. It got me in the game and it, and it started this career. It wasn't that easy. It wasn't that simple. Right. But it was the beginning of what would become my career. You said that the book may have sold six copies and that your mom <laughs> bought four. Hopefully now, after all these years, people can still buy it. At that point, you moved back to D.C. You took various jobs. You became a stock boy at Lord & Taylor. You worked for your dad. Mm -hmm. For a time, you were living in your car. Mm -hmm. You decided that you were going to quit writing. 
Mm-hmm. Um, your friend Christopher Myers, who is also an author and an illustrator, talked you out of it by giving you some writing advice that you said changed everything. What did he tell you? Well, first, let me say that I, I was living in my car. Well, I slept in the car for a night or two. I don't know what, because there's a lot of people who are really unhoused and I don't want to teeth off their story. But I, I did experience that and it was a bummer. Um, that being said, I was working in a retail store downtown New York City. My buddy, Christopher Myers, who I'd known since I was 21, he was my first mentor in this industry. As a kid, he took me under his wing, showed me the ropes. His father, the great Walter Dean Myers, um, who basically, I don't get to be here if it wasn't for him, nor does the great Jacqueline Woodson get to be here, nor does a lot of us who sort of stand on the shoulders of Walter, who, who made space for stories about Black children, specifically Black children from urban environments. It was amazing. So Chris comes in and, he, and he's like, look, man, I want you to try to write one more book. I'd quit writing. I was so frustrated and I felt like a failure. And I had a job that I liked, right? It's funny how that happens, you know? Like I got this gig selling clothes, loved it, right? Is that what you were at Rag and Bone? At Rag and Bone, right? And for people who, if you don't live in, let's say you don't live in a New York City or in LA, it might sound really wild for a person to be like, yeah, I sold these clothes and I loved it. But in those major cities, that's a real career. I made a ton of money. It was a fun gig. I love the job. And there are people who are 40 and 50 years old and it's not, and it's no sweat. Like I, I take my hat off to those folks because it's a good job. I had insurance. I had all kinds of stuff, right? Um, shout out to the retail workers. Shout out to the service workers in general, the waiters, anybody working customer service. We hold our heads high. Um, and, and he came in and he asked me to write one more book because his father was getting old. Walter was getting old. And he said, look, man, somebody got to carry that mantle. Somebody got to pick that up. Who's going to write the stories about the kids who grew up like us, the kids who are experiencing what we experienced, the kids who, who, who just want to be seen as human, um, the kids who have taken a few lumps, the kids who have an infectious laughter, right? Like, who, who's going to tell those stories? And he said, but, but, you, but do it your way. Mind you, I tried to get into grad school three times. I tried to get into the new school, and I'm going to say their names because I like to make sure I poke them whenever every chance I get. I like to get into, I tried to get into the new school twice. I tried to get into Penn State, and they kept rejecting me, rejecting me. And this is after I was published, and I'm being rejected, rejected, rejected. I'm kind of at, at a loss here, and I'm like, I'm just going to work retail. And he says, man, just write a story your own way, like your voice, your style, throw out the rules, man, just do your thing. And so I scribbled in the notepad this story about my older brother and I growing up, you know, and all of the sort of silly things we got into, and it became this book when I was the greatest. And and, and that was the beginning of of my life changing into something I don't know if I ever could have imagined. Well, you've since published 15 more books, including Ghost, which was a National Book Award finalist, which I want to talk to you about because that book had a profound impact on me. Uh, You've won the Kirkus Prize, the NAACP Image Award for Outstanding Literary Work, the Schneider Family Book Award, the Newbery Honor, a Prince Honor, a Carnegie Medal. And in 2020, you were named the Library Congress National Ambassador for Young People's Literature, which is a position you still hold today. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. When I Was the Greatest came out in 2014, and the book's teenage narrator, Allie, has an estranged father who's cycled in and out of jail. And in your 2016 book, Ghost, which is the first book in the four-part track series, Castle Crenshaw's father tries to kill him and his mother 
and then is also in jail. And Mm -hmm. you've stated that in all of your novels, you borrow liberally from reality, fictionalizing your own life and the lives of friends and family. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the reason you have these two really important figures in these books that both have fathers in jail. First, let me say that Ghost is rooted in a real story that really happened to my dear friend, Matt Carter, who lived down the street from me. His father tried to shoot him. Like, that's a real thing. Well, his mother's boyfriend tried to shoot him, actually. And I think I, I, I write those two characters in particular, in particular, I've written them that way, not actually because of the incarceration, but more so I'm, I'm always interested in wrestling with the dynamics of, of family because of my own family, right? And because of my own father, who was this incredible guy that I had a, a contentious relationship with for, gosh, 15 years of my life, only to fix it before he passed on. And the reason I think about him often and I write about these sorts of family dynamics is because there was never a moment in my life where I wasn't sure that my father loved me, mm. right? So no matter what our family dynamic was and no matter what was happening with the two of us, I knew my father loved me. He made that very clear. And I think what, when it comes to specifically black families, but all, all families that have shifting dynamic, right? Uh, I think what happens is we throw around this weird language like broken home, right? We say, like, oh, you come from a broken home. And I, I don't like that I, I, because a broken home connotes that, a bro- that, that, that it makes broken people. I'm not a broken person, nor were my parents. It was just a different kind of family. And difference is okay. You know, like, uh, just because your father and mother aren't together does not mean your father is absent from your life. And I think that's what I'm always wrestling with. Whereas in Ghost's situation, his father did do a terrible thing and then was absent from his life. But the way Ghost talks about him, it, it's layered, right? Because Ghost isn't upset that he, does, he doesn't know how to feel because he misses his father. He understands that, like, yes, this terrible thing happens, but also this is still a man I love. This is still my father. And I understand that my father may be a complicated person and may have some things that he has to sort out and that, I, that I'm angry with about the fact that my father did this terrible thing, but it does not strip me of the truth that my father is my father and I do love my father regardless of this particular moment. And that's a really, really, really hard not to undo, but that is the knot of our lives. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Talk about ghosts. You have this character, this extraordinary character, Castle Crenshaw, whose whose nickname is is Ghost. And I know you grew up with a lot of nicknames. <laughs> um, in Long Way Down, the book is populated with ghosts. Mm-hmm. So so talk about the importance of the sort of ghost in, in your work. I believe that we are all haunted. And and what I when I say that, I think people's sort of knee-jerk reaction is to believe that we're haunted by things that have died uh, or people that have died, uh, right? The idea of ghosts being um, things that show up at the foot of your bed, the hazy and, and, and translucent, right? No, what I'm saying is we're all being haunted by everyone who's ever taught us anything. We're being haunted by our experiences. We're being haunted by our religious beliefs. We're being haunted by every breakup. We're being haunted by every marriage. We're being haunted by the good things and the bad things. To be haunted isn't always a negative thing. What I'm saying is to you, everywhere I go, I hear the voices of everyone who who I've ever interacted with in my ear. Every time I'm going to make a bad decision, I can hear my mother, who is still alive, 
in my ear saying, now, you know better. Now, take it easy. Right. Get a grip. Right. Like, I believe that. I believe that we're we, we, we just call it conscience. We just call it conscience. Right. But what it, but our consciences are built by our experiences and the people in our lives. Which means that all of us are technically being haunted all the time. <laughs> Right. And that's the reason why I'm so I'm always you know, I use ghost or I use I mean, the ghost. I mean, you know, it, it, the other thing about the, the the ghost thing, especially in ghost, the book uh, and in long way down is that if we were to. OK, so there's one part about it that's about conscience. And it's the other part about it. That's like there are so many things and so many people in our lives that are there and not that are th- that we can see and don't see. That, that we believe are in the room, but aren't in the room. Whether it be fathers and, re- and that complicated relationship with our fathers, whether it be uh, being black in America, right? Like I am always in every room and yet never in the room. Mm. We see this again in Spider-Man and my version of Miles Morales. We see this again uh, in so many of my books where it's like the, the, the kid is there and yet no one seems to see. We see this in... The boy in the black suit. Uh, we, you know what I mean? Like this is something that I'm always grappling with. What does it mean to be there? And you know, people know you're there, but they can't see you for some reason, or or to feel something, or they see through you, or, you or know, they see through yeah. exactly, exactly, right? Like, and so you know, the ghostliness of black life is a very real thing. And so those are the two prongs that I'm always kind of bumping together uh, to make a lot of my books. To make a lot of my books. I think that the whole notion of your books being considered YA books is a bit of a misnomer. Mm. I think that they're YA books sort of disguised as adult books because (laughs) having read most of your books at this point, I would say that they have impacted me more than many of the so-called adult books that I've Mm. read. I've only actually ever cried at the end of three books, like really wept. And I cry a lot. I cry at movies. I, but in terms of books, I've cried th- at three at the end of three books. Love in the Time of Cholera by uh. Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Wept, wept. <laughs> Middle Sex and now Ghost. Oh, wept. thank you. Wept, thank wept. You. Came into the den. Roxanne's like, oh my God, what happened? <laughs> like, I, I finished Ghost. And she's like, oh, honey. (laughs) And I, you know, Castle is the hero of Ghost, but you never give him the burden of being heroic. No. Unlike so many of the popular tropes of our time. And in fact, you've written that in Ghost, you hope you show that you can't run away from who you are, but what you can do is run towards who you want to be. Yeah. Talk about this sort of intentional humanness of your characters, if you can. Well, you know, I'm, I'm so glad you brought up this idea around heroism. I don't believe in that. I try not to ever write heroes and villains because I just don't mm-hmm. believe in heroes and villains, right? I believe in journey folk, right? They were all just sort of <laughs> on, on the journey, you know what I mean? And, and whether one is heroic or villainous, is contextualized by whatever particular part of the journey that they're on, right? But but that they that, that swings and changes. Ghost does a lot of things that some people would look down on, and then he does other things that some people would sort of you know applaud him for, and that's just what it is to be a person, 
And all I ever want to do in my books is just show, for me, specifically black children as human beings, as people, right? And, and that's all he is, a person with a heart and fear and jokes and ambition and anger and doubt. Like He's just a person. And, I, and I, it's also the reason why we don't know what happens at the end of that story. Because it doesn't oh, actually, because it doesn't actually yeah. matter. Because it, because it doesn't actually. I mean, hasn't he already won? Yeah. Like, I mean, your endings destroy me, Jason. <laughs> I mean, I got to the end of the book, and you know, I read it on Kindle. I like to read when I'm reading for the show on Kindle because then I can highlight and transcribe right. very easily. I don't have to be typing at all, and and sort of not be able to concentrate. And. Because, you know, you could always see where you are in the book. There was, you know, I didn't realize that there was all the acknowledgments and then there was book club notes. So I got to that boom and and I turned the page and I'm like, wait, what? And then I just start <laughs> weeping, weeping because of how much you have to decide for yourself yeah. how that story ends. Yeah. And it is just glorious. You also do that in Long Way Down. Mm-hmm. You coming? <laughs> and to, to, and you know I should be giving some spoiler alerts, but I'm just assuming that everybody in the world has read your books because that's how important they are. But talk about that ambiguity. Why do you why do you like your readers to construct their own endings? Because I respect them. The truth of the matter is, nobody wants you to wrap it all up. You know, and I, like, this is something that I learned over the years. I, my first novel, when when I was the greatest, was was written. The ending was very different. My editor wrote me a note. My very first editorial letter, uh, she said, hey, man, uh, it's, a, it's a shame that you don't trust yourself. It's a shame. All this talent, all this ability. Man, you're going to be something when you learn to trust yourself. And her name is Caitlin, Caitlin DeLouis. And, and that note was the note that helped me understand what I'm doing here and, 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 and what an ending actually should be uh, for me, for my style. I believe that because my, the, my demographic, the way it's, my books are marketed, uh, are to young people, I think it's important that they know I respect them. And that respect basically comes from me telling them and challenging them by saying, hey, I've given you 250 or 300 pages. I believe that you have the reasoning ability and the intelligence and the sophistication to come up with whatever you think the next page is on your own or to live in the uncertainty of the story. Right. I believe in you enough to know that you are capable of that. Right. And that's the reason if I if I tell you everything that happens, if I write the story for three or four more pages, then what I what that says to you is that I don't think you have the intelligence, the emotional intelligence or the critical thinking skills to do any of this work on your own. And I just don't feel that way. I just don't feel that way. I want to ask you about one of the lines in Ghost, but in order to really do that, I have to read the paragraph that it ends with. And so if you don't mind, I'm going to read a paragraph from Ghost, which I'm glad you said that your work should be read out loud because I wanted to read this. (laughs) It starts this way. And the conversation for the rest of the night was pretty much all about the Olympics. Coach didn't really say too much more about it. It was mainly just us talking about what it must have been like and all that. But I was glad that we were off my secret. It was like I had never even said anything about what happened with my dad, even though I did. And it seemed like everybody at the table cared and didn't care at the same time. 
And that made me feel, for the first time, like I was one of them. They even asked me if I needed to borrow some practice gear, which I thought was nice, but I told them I was cool, that my mother was going to get me some soon, even though I hadn't even asked for none yet. Plus, I kind of wanted my first jersey and shorts to be the ones I ran my first race in, which I hadn't really even thought about until just then. But I appreciated them offering to look out for me. Not many people do that. I could add them to the list of my mother, Mr. Charles, and, well, coach. And it felt good to feel like one of the teammates, like I was there, really, really there, as me, but without as much scream inside. Mm. I just, I need, I'm like about to cry. <laughs> me too, right. actually. I've never had, I don't think I've heard anybody else read it. Jesus. It's making me emotional. Talk about that scream inside, because I, as I said, you, you know, you're writing about a young black boy in school, you know, in middle school. And yeah. I'm a 60 year old white woman. I felt it so viscerally in my bones as just yeah. humanity, the scream inside. I think, um, you know, as I try to get myself together, it's weird when I have so much distance uh, at this point when it comes to that story that it feels like it's somebody else's. So they hear it as a bit, uh, it's kind of got me a little... Um, it's an incredible book. It's an incre I mean, When is it going to be a movie? Don't even get me started on that, Jesus! It's been quite a, quite a. It's, it's supposed to be a TV show. The series is supposed to be a TV show, but you know, it, it all moves slow. It'll happen eventually. Yeah, I mean, the four books have to be. It's just they're extraordinary. They are an extraordinary that. series. But yes, back to the scream inside. The scream inside. I think I, I, I'm around. Um, I'm around so many kids. Right. I've been fortunate that the books have sort of put me in position to be around our, uh, the, the world's youth. And I think that like the hardest part is trying to figure out how to give language to the things that feel so intangible, but that we all know are there, right? I think about like the, the uprisings. I don't want to call them riots, but the racial uprisings, right? And, and the, the way that people talk about them, if you're not from those communities, you ask these questions about like, why would they break their own things? Why would they destroy uh, buildings in their own communities, right? And it's like, well, if you remember being a child and if you remember not being able to uh, express um, a frustration or not having the vocabulary or the language to put to the feelings you have inside, all of our experiences in that moment are the same. We reach for our own toys and break our own toys, right? It's just what human beings do when they can't figure out how to articulate the scream inside. And I think for me, writing Ghost, I think that was the one thing I wanted to kind of really drill down on is that this kid is carrying a tremendous weight. He's not letting it stop him, but it doesn't mean it's not there. It hasn't sort of like made him bitter. It hasn't sort of made him a lesser friend. It hasn't made him a lesser son. And that speaks to that child's resilience and the resilience of the children of our world, but it doesn't mean that it's not there. Even if you can't see it, it doesn't mean that it's not there. Even if he can't say it, it doesn't mean that it's not there. And I think that's not even just kids. That's all of us, right? We carry just so much. And it's heavy for all of us, right? And I don't know, because I'm always just trying to figure out how to, how to put that down on the page to set somebody else free, to let somebody else know, like, I, I get it. 
I feel it in in everything that you write. In Long Way Down, you give the protagonist of the story a very big life choice. And I know that when you were 19, your friend Randell was murdered. And then that night, you've written about how your friends and you went to his mom's house trying to figure out who did this. And you were thinking very much about revenge, thinking about the possibilities, envisioning murdering the man who murdered your friend. Sure. You wrote, I just remember the pain, the pain of the lost friend, but also the pain of meeting a part of myself that I didn't know existed, a part of myself that could lose control to the point where I could commit a murder. That's a very human thing. I think that most of us don't ever meet that part of ourselves that exists within all of us. This rage that when triggered will cause you to do the things that you don't necessarily understand that you're doing. Yeah. And for me, that is the scream inside. And for me, it, it feels very real. It feels like it. I think that's why people get angry and why they sort of lose their shit because of the grief they're really feeling, the deep scream inside that can mm-hmm. only come out as anger as opposed to grief. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I uh, I always tell people, you know, I in, in the 90s and early 2000s, and even now, you know, there's, and even in the, I mean, it started in the 70s, right? This idea that we would use the word peace as a greeting and salutation, right? Peace, 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 right? Peace for hello, peace for goodbye. Yeah. Um, and that's cool, right? Like, it's a beautiful thing, but but it's also, um, <laughs> it's circumstantial because the truth is, is that like everybody's peaceful until that peace is challenged. You know, I always tell people, you know, if you got kids, you know, which I don't, but I'm around them and I have, all my friends have children, you know, and, and, and also I just love children. Right. But if you, but if you have children or if you, or, or even that, for that matter, ask your parents, right. Everybody's, you got, you may have peaceful parents, but if anything were to happen to you, uh, we see it. We we meet a new part of your parents, right? You know, uh, it, and and for the parents in the world, if anything were to happen, God forbid, to your children, you would meet a very different part of yourself. Oh yeah, a, par- a part of yourself that could do a thing, a heinous thing, that you never thought that you could do. And I met that at nineteen, and I think, and I'm grateful. Mind you, I want to be clear. I'm grateful to have met that part of me. It's good to know it's there. It's good, you know, because now I can better manage it because now I know it. I know it, right? I have a, I have an intimate relationship with it in a very different way. Um, and so now I'm able to, uh, to harness that differently and to under, like you said, and to understand that like this is grief, right? That, that it's, that, that this doesn't have to be violence, but that really I have to figure out how to, how to better mourn, how to better grieve, uh, where to put my anger. Jason, I have two last questions for you. I know that we're going long. First, I want to talk with you about censorship. (laughs) You seem to be a real target right now, a favorite (laughs) target of the censors. Last year, two books you co-authored, including All American Boys, which you wrote with Brendan Kiley, about a racially charged police beating, made the ALA's most challenged book list. It seems that people are saying that... You're indoctrinating children when you're really mm-hmm. talking about what's real. Yeah. How are you managing through that? I mean, it seems just tragically unfair to keep anybody away from being able to read your books. They're the books that are, especially, especially children, they're, you're telling them the truth about the world. 
Yeah, it's it's weird. It always feels weird, and I my my honest emotions around censorship is that it's it's strange, uh, it's frustrating, it's unloving. As far as I'm concerned, that being said, I only really care about the kids. So the way that I cope and deal is I keep my eye on the prize, the prize of these of these babies. Uh, if the children are good with it, then the children are good with it. If the parents want to get in the way of that. I'll do everything I can to sort of circumvent if I can, but I also don't want to tell people how to parent, right? That's not my place. But is it the parents? Is it, it doesn't feel like it's the parents that are objecting it. It's these like administrative people that probably haven't even read the books. Nah, it's the, it's the parents because the administration only moves when the parents come and complain. So -hmm. what happens is like parents come and they go to the school board and they go to the superintendent and they say that this, that that you're indoctrinating our, these books are changing our children and this, that, and the third. And then the administration is so afraid of that pressure that they pull the plugs on our books. So like that's, that's what's happening. And it's always one or two parents or a handful of parents that affect whole curriculums or whole libraries. Like it's wild how this is happening. And then like the, the politics come in. And they use it as sort of political ploy and ways to sort of, you know, they they basically are using our children as pawn for their political ideologies, right? So this is like what's happening. Um, All of it is nasty and disgusting and we should be ashamed of ourselves. When I say we, I mean America as a a, a whole, uh, that this is even a thing. But I I will continue to fight the good fight and, and, and make the things that feel honest. In terms of the indoctrination thing, I also think that that's a bunch of nonsense, right? I hear it all the time. And I challenge it, right? I challenge even the language of indoctrination because if we're being completely honest and we, if we wanted to wrestle with these ideas, which of course we do not because we hate intellectual, we, we hate to sort of like intellectualize uh, the things that should be intellectualized, right? But if we were, you know, just just for S's and G's, if we were to, if we were to sort of really wrestle with the ideas of indoctrination, I personally would argue that uh, it isn't me who's indoctrinating young people. I mean, they've already been indoctrinated. Yeah. Everything is indoctrinating, right? I, like, I hate this idea that it's like, oh, no, if, if it's something I'm dis- I disagree with, it's indoctrination. As if school hasn't already done this, parenting hasn't already done this, religion hasn't already done this, like every, <laughs> video games isn't doing it, YouTube, TikTok, right? Indoctrination is everywhere. All I'm saying is, wouldn't it be nice to just figure out how to shift the doctrine so that we're, so, so that like, it's a doctrine of peace and justice and equality and equity and inclusion and love and fairness, right? Like, what if we could do that, right? Because this idea that I'm indoctrinating them is is a silly point because everything is indoctrinated. It's so. I think so your work weird. is the opposite of that. I think your your work teaches tolerance. Exactly. Exactly. And I'm totally game for the disagreement. I'm just not game for the disengagement. Let's right. let's actually lean in. And like really wrestle with some ideas. That's all my books are meant to do. They're just playgrounds for ideas. You don't have to agree with them. I mean, I take umbrage with you disagreeing with my right to live, right? But in terms of the ideas and all the theories, we can we can we can spar. And our babies should know that. Our babies should know that it is important to wrestle with the ideas that impact your life, right? And to try to get to the truth and to the bottom of all the things that that impact your life, so that you might be able to bend them back. Uh, you know, toward a place of equity and justice to better impact your life and you can actually then change the future. We can't change the future if we are afraid to give our young people the tools to do so. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> it just doesn't make sense. I'm not a boogeyman. <laughs> no, the opposite, the opposite. I, well, this leads me to my last question. 
you've said that you believe that young people are the antidote to hopelessness. Yes. Do you feel in this moment where everything seems to be insecure, do you feel optimistic about the future? Yes. Because I have to. I don't want to ever allow myself to become cynical. I think it's too dangerous for a person like me. Uh, you know, one time I was talking to James McBride, the great writer, musician James McBride, and, and he said, Jason, pessimism is healthy. Cynicism is dangerous. You know, and I just, uh, I refuse to allow myself to slip into that hole. I think it's too deep of a hole to climb out of most times. And that's the reason why I surround myself with the kids, the young people. Young people believe that the world is a changeable place. And therefore, the world is a changeable place. I'd rather live there, right? What's happening on the news, I'm careful with that. Uh, I, I, for my own mental health, I'm careful with taking in too much of it. I'd rather go and look at what tomorrow holds. And what tomorrow holds are a whole bunch of young geniuses with a whole lot of fire, a whole lot of scream inside. Mm. The kind of scream that'll burst the eardrums of hate. Right, that kind of scream, that's what they have. And I'd rather be with them. Jason Reynolds, thank you so much for making so much work that matters. And thank you, thank you, thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. Oh, thank you for having me. I cried all over your show. We had a moment. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Jason, his most recent two books are titled Stamped for Kids, Racism, Anti-Racism, and You, with Ibram X. Kendi, and Ain't Burned All the Bright, which is so amazing and so beautiful, with his dear friend, the illustrator, Jason Griffin. You can find out more about all of Jason's extraordinary books at jasonwritesbooks.com. This is the 18th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. The interviews are usually recorded at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Wyland.